Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 536. Going to be north of here, I said, farther from the road. Do you think it would be better to scout things out a bit now or wait until tomorrow when we're fresh? Martin squinted at me. Good lord, boy. These aren't real trail signs. So obvious, all so close together. He gave me a long look. I left them. I needed to make sure you weren't going to glaze over after a few minutes of looking. My elation fell from some place in my chest and landed around my feet, shattering like a glass jar tipped from a high shelf. My expression must have been pitiful, as Martin gave me an apologetic smile. I'm sorry, I should have told you. I'll be doing it off and on every day. It's the only chance we have to stay alert. This isn't my first time hunting through haystacks, you know. The third time we called Martin back, he suggested we make a standing wager. Tempe and I would win a haypenny for every sign we found and he'd win a silver bit for every one we missed. I jumped at the offer. Not only would it help keep us on our toes, but five to one odds seemed rather generous. This made the rest of the day pass quickly. Tempe and I missed a few signs. A log shifted out of place, some scattered leaves, and a broken spiderweb. I thought this last one was a bit unfair. But even so, by the time we headed back to camp that evening, Tempe and I were two pennies ahead. Over supper, Martin told a story about a young widow's son who left home to make his fortune. A tinker sold him a pair of magic boots that helped him rescue a princess from a tower high in the mountains. Dayton nodded along while he ate, smiling as if he'd heard it before. Hespi laughed in places, gasped in others the perfect audience. Tempe sat perfectly still with his hands folded in his lap, showing none of the nervous restlessness I'd come to expect from him. He stayed that way through the entire story, listening while his dinner grew cold. The story was a good one. There was a hungry giant and a riddle game. But the widow's son was clever, and in the end, he brought the princess back and married her. It was a familiar story, and listening to it reminded me of days long gone, back when I had a home, a family. And that's the page and the chapter. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I want to start by calling out a misprint in my copy of the book, just after the Tilda Brand. Martin is uh, named Martin. I-N-M-A-R-T-I-N. Oh. Uh, whereas normally he is M-A-R-T-E-N. Indeed. Just to be clear, in other places in your book, he's, his name is spelled with the E. That's right. I've not, I've not seen this typo before. Looks like they caught it on the second go-round. <laughs> yeah. And maybe his name was Martin once, and then they went through, Rothfuss went through and replaced all the E's with I, or all the I's with E's. And, and oh my God, that would be awful. Overlooked this one. I would feel so bad for that editor. (laughs) 
think you would do control A, but it didn't happen. You got to do control H. I don't know how people made changes like that before control H, like having to go through your entire thousand page manuscript and manually like change somebody's name. Every instance of it appearing truly the dark ages. So I've never used control H and I don't know what it does. Control H is the function in word for find and replace. So control F lets you find all instances of a word. Control H lets you find all instances of a thing and then change them. Got it. Thank you. This has been Hotkey Corner with Jeremy Large. <laughs> Nick, I feel like you had something to say about the actual book. This is a very childish moment from Quoth. Something where he, he comes off looking an ass. Uh, or maybe not an ass, but certainly a fool. And uh, what I take from Martin's body language is that he sort of... This... Martin thought better of Quoth. Like he he seemed... Or at least Martin, you know, forgot how young Quoth is for a second and had to remind himself. Because Quoth is wise beyond his years, but every now and then something like this will sneak through. Like he clearly doesn't countenance until Martin explains it to him that Martin's leaving these clues for them to find to keep them on their toes, which is something that you would think Quoth would figure out on his own. But he just got so excited about being done so soon. Yeah. Martin, you know, squinting at him and then kind of looking apologetic and saying, oh, I'm sorry, kid. Like, you know, chin up. It'll be OK. Like, Mar- I I think it's interesting interesting little game while we're reading this chapter and this section of the book to judge Martin's opinion of Quoth from his body language. A few pages ago, we had him being impressed, uh, giving him a nod at how he handled Dayton. And now we have him squinting and going, oh man, I, th- I, I don't think he's like disappointed, but I do think that he is taking a new measure of Quoth yet again. I don't think it's, un- I don't think it's unreasonable for Quoth to assume, oh, we're looking for bandits. Maybe we found a clue. It's been a while. Well, also, Quoth is not the only one who has assumed here. Tempe also assumed. That's the, like I don't think we're meant to think less of Quoth in this instance because he's do, making the best assumption he can with the information he has. You know, like I, that's all you could expect anybody to, to do, really. I think that the the difference in close reaction to that of maybe a more adult human is just is not that that he didn't initially understand that it was Martin leaving the things. It's his reaction to finding out. So it's not that like he couldn't he like it's not that he didn't pick up right away that these were things that Martin did. It's that his reaction to it was visible disappointment. Rather than, like, general understanding. I mean, mine would be too. <laughs> if you told me, like, oh, I did it, I did it. Oh, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. I would also look like fucking Eeyore. Because that sucks. You know, I think Martin is letting him down easy and, like, trying to cheer him up. Because he's not just, like, sulky. He's not, he's not like, sulking because he thought he was a special boy and because he's not. It's because he thought that this incredibly arduous, impossible-seeming task was done, but it's not. And I think, I think what I'm responding to more than anything else is yet another moment where Quoth is not a special boy or where Quoth makes an understandable yet childish mistake. Like, I think I like that. It helps to temper the character when he doesn't see the the strategic perspective all this time like this chapter and the chapters before he's constantly like 
doing the right thing or he's through his cleverness uh asserting his dominance or his leadership skills over this crew and it's kind of refreshing and pleasant like i don't read this as like a point of conflict or a point that's harmful to both but i am responding to it positively maybe a little bit of schadenfreude but also just to temper this character with another bit of understandable failure and to be reminded that he is childish i, I don't think it's like a question of quote behaving wrong or losing esteem in Martin's eyes. It's just that the string of successes need to have some, uh, some understandable, not failures, but it, it fits with the character and it's, it's nice. Well, cause it's not a perfect success, right? It's not an unqualified success much in the same way that him having the idea for the bird call is a qualified success he rolled a seven to nine in dungeon world he had a good idea but it's not quite the perfect idea right like yes he succeeded on his check to spot the sign but that doesn't mean that the thing he did is finished i think where we align is this is yet another point on our endless plot chart of things that make Quoth not a Mary Sue, because if he was Wesley Crusher, he would have found the, like the bandit camp in 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also Wesley Crusher only had the 44 minutes of the episode, possibly 88 if it's a Mm two-parter to wrap everything up. Whereas Quoth has the luxury of however many thousands of pages this book is. The storytelling is foreshadowing. I think, I think this is the first time we talk about them telling stories around the fire. Because there's an awful lot of stories and stories that come out of this trio, mm-hmm. quadrio, uh, as they're doing their traveling. So this first one is a pretty standard story of like Jack and the giant. We learn something about each of the companions by how they react to it. I'm particularly interested, and I think Quoth is particularly interested in Tempe, who is sitting for an atom quietly, like arms fo- hands folded means mouth closed, right? He's This is the equivalent of like when... When you when the librarian gets the kids together for story time and has them all put their hands on their head, hands on your ears, hands on your mouth, just to get them focused and get them sitting. He's listening three times. This is him. Yeah, this is him signaling that he's listening because the ADM speak with their hands. Um, and then it may also signal that he's you know he loves stories. He has a sense of wonder. He's not eating his food, so he's genuinely interested. And again, Quoth is mistaken by pegging. Tempe's movements to nervousness. This is something that if I was drafting a screenplay or a visual version of, of this, I would take a cue in how I was designing the Adam language from the way that Quoth describes Tempe here. American Sign Language and, and not just ASL, but other real world sign languages seem like they have purpose uh, with their movements. It's very hard to mistake sign language for uh, a twitch or a gesture and i think that's kind of the point but it seems to me that the adam language isn't as mindful or it doesn't appear as mindful as as real world sign languages it can be it's subtle um it can be mistaken for emotion it's closer to how i imagine the secret gesture language in dune uh where it, it's you know potentially can be mistaken for for a twitch or a fidget and so that's an interesting kind of visual direction for what that looks like. And they totally pull it off in in Dune, I thought. Yeah, Dune is a flawless movie. Don't at me. <laughs> Did you read about the worst crime that NFT bros have committed? 
Can't wait. This feels like a tangent and I have things. It's a tangent, but it has to be said. NFT bros bought the Yodorovsky's Dune screenplay book and are trying to turn it into an NFT. It, it's not even a screenplay. They bought a they bought a book of concept art from Jodorowsky's Dune, and now they think they own the No, it's not a book of concept art. It's the book. It's the it's the book that he was shopping around. It's the complete storyboard. It's the concept art, it's the script, it's the storyboard, it's the movie visualized. Okay. But yes, now they think now they think they own the copyright to Jodorowsky's Dune, which is uh, stupid because they're stupid and yeah but also now the the obvious thing which is to publish that as a coffee table book will never happen because the the bros have their fingers in it well of all the things that crypto has done that's bad like accelerating the heat death of our planet uh this is by far the worst why what's stopping me from doing that what's stopping me from doing like the equivalent of right click saving on it do you have it anywhere can you see what's inside it Nobody has ever published it. The point is that it's never been published. It's never been available. Let me put it this way. I think if Penguin wanted to publish it tomorrow, they wouldn't let the fact that some NFT dipshits bought it stop them. Right, but they haven't yet. My point is that nobody has has done it for whatever reason. The book has been a forever sought after unpublished manuscript that I'm, you know, everyone who's clued into it is dying to read. And now the worst version of that will come to pass. I don't think anything will be different in the world <laughs> because this has happened. I think it will have exactly zero impact. Well, only time will tell. It won't. I know you're trying to, to end the subject, Jordana, but what I'm lamenting is not the fact that it has like a negative impact, but that it like it steals a bit of magic and possibility. It steals like circulating this thing that has been the subject of much speculation and imagination and just turns it into a commodity and i know that like a published book would be a commodity but at least then it's like accessible this is now like a weird crypto statement i don't know just everything about it is odious and it makes me sad i'm sorry i'm i'm sorry i i think that it'll be okay i don't know if it'll be okay but i also am happy to not worry about it for now <laughs> <laughs> What you you said that you had I do I do have things. Uh, one of them relating to how, what we were talking about with Tempe, and that he's not moving and his food is getting cold. And I think part of the him not doing anything, including the eating of his food, is like not just an enjoyment of the story, but a respect for it, like a respect for for both the teller and the story itself. I was gonna bring this up if if you didn't, because what his behavior reminds me of is like sitting in church. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but I also never sit in church. <laughs> I, well, me either. But when I do, I sit quietly and I do what I'm told because that's what you do mm. in church because it's sacred. Mm. And what I'm getting at it here is like, I don't remember this. I'm hoping one of you remembers this book better than me. But is the ADEM attitude towards stories sacred? Do they view them as sacred? I can't remember. Because that is what his behavior says to me. That's what it says to me as well. I'm glad you mentioned it. And we will get into this a bit later, the Adam attitude towards stories. Um, certainly their their attitude toward performance is uh, very specific. But, uh, you know, story they... I, I think sacred is a good way of, of tackling it. You know, it's it's part of the teachings, right? Like there's a lot of the Lathani and the, the teachings of their culture tied up in, in stories as we will uh, eventually encounter. So we can keep a pin in this and return to it. But I agree that it signals 
more than just like an attentiveness. It signals a, a ritual mm. from Tempe. Mm-hmm. Not to overlook her, but Hespi's reaction is is really interesting also because it's very like childlike. Which is weird for Hespi. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which to me, you know, again, I'm I'm always looking for these these cracks, but it speaks of an, an inner life of Hespi that she she gets caught up in the story and she forgets her tough. Well, confidence. actually, this segues well into my second point uh, because the same way that. For Hespi, it's sort of making her maybe nostalgic acting. It's all it's making Quoth nostalgic feeling. And I imagine it's also making Hespi nostalgic feeling, which is probably also why she acts that way. Like for for Quoth to say, Oh yeah, like this is like the days long gone back when he had a home and a family, like probably like I imagine that Hespi probably at some point or continues to have a family and might enjoy stories like this with said family. What all of their reactions kind of say and how we can tie them all together is that this is like an old familiar story. It would be like me telling Little Red Riding Hood, right? It's a story that everybody knows the beats of, even if they don't know the specific version that this person's telling, because they're always a little bit different. But it does all have that notion of like familiar like comforting familiarity you know remember when you were a kid and you loved this story and they're all giving that reaction in ways that suit their particular personalities it's a moment of characterization but that also speaks in miniature to like how stories can transport us and like to a specific time and place in our lives yes that yes that it (laughs) is the end of a chapter and this chapter was called signs because they're looking for signs in the woods signs signs everywhere there's signs blocking up the scenery i was also gonna make that joke but then i think i've made it before has there already been a chapter called signs you know what that does sound familiar maybe there has (laughs) okay wait that's not what i thought you were gonna say i i thought i thought that you were gonna say that the uh, the other thing that is a sign is Tempe's uh, like like non fidgeting thing. Like he's giving a sign. Like his behavior is a sign. That's much smarter than what we are doing. We're just doing a song. <laughs> okay. Uh, however, okay. So apparently, Name of the Wind, Book One, Chapter Seventy, is also oh called oh interesting is- interesting. This is seventy nine. That is the chapter where he overhears rumors about. The massacre with blue fire that sends him up to Treba. Oh. So, which happens much later in that book than we are in this book. So I guess what we can take away from this is that everywhere there are signs. Uh, so always keep a half full glass of water on every convenient surface, just in case a sign pops into your house and tries to abduct your family. Wait, what? That's right. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the sign? We'll see you all tomorrow on another page of the way.